she drove with her eyes closed. Now this went on for decades. This was this wasn't anything new, and she, and she had a perfect driving record. Don't get me wrong; she didn't have accidents. I once asked her why she drove with her eyes closed, and her reaction was surprise. You know, she said, "Well, I'm praying, of course." Sometimes then she'd have people, of course, who perhaps um, didn't have as much faith as the rest of us had. Suddenly they would find that they could pray too. <laughs> My granny died on August 6th. Almost immediately, the online abuse started. That witch has a special place reserved for her in hell. May she scream for all eternity. She was an evil influence. Don't be afraid to be happy when people like this die. The world is a better place without them. My granny was Mina. Mina Bani Cribbing. Is to have a baby outside of wedlock, and she's assured of what thirty-four pounds a week. A prominent campaigner against social change in Ireland before I was born. That's a terribly startling thing for an unmarried mother. It's hardly well, a living. Though, I don't it? call them unmarried mothers. Let's call them what they are—mistresses. You know, it's all fine. Yeah, it's all fine. Yeah, and it's all fine as long as it's somebody way out there. You know, but it's somebody's son or husband that's involved in these things. They're not nice, and they simply shouldn't be there. But I didn't really understand how well-known she had been until, when I was a teenager, her name was mentioned in a court case relating to incest. Good evening and welcome to 6-1. A Roscommon mother convicted of incest, sexual abuse and neglect of her children has been jailed for seven years. Whenever the media did stories on my granny, they showed her post office in Santry, near Dublin Airport, and the large statue in the window. So right now we're outside the post office, Santry Post Office. We're over at the window, the famous um, Mary statue. There's a statue of the Virgin Mary. It's a really beautiful statue. It's just that I, I know myself that if I didn't know the woman that lived here, I would make assumptions just from driving by and seeing that statue in the window. I would probably make assumptions about this kind of like this old woman. Have you ever seen Edward Scissorhands? You know that um, really religious one in that? Okay, she has this big shrine in her window and she goes around telling everybody that God will forsake them and, uh, you know, that they're all going to hell and stuff like that. Someone like that. The woods behind the post office are where Mina Bani Cribbin began life as Philomena Lawless in 1928. She lived in a cottage in the grounds of an ascendancy estate. The woods were her playground. It was a lovely childhood because you were very close to nature. You were surrounded by trees and birds. And She told me this story about when she was young. She'd be on her way home from school and she'd see a little snail and she'd kneel down next to him and, you know, be having the chats, <laughs> having the chats with him. You know, like the way that kids do. You'll just go up to a worm and be like, how are you? Um, so she was doing this, but there was someone that used to try and stop her from speaking to the snail. When she was telling the story, she was saying, why would you be doing that? I just wanted to sit there with my little snail and have my chats with my snail, and I was happy. So she always had that lovely connection with nature, so from a very, very young age. 
Mina's mother had planned to be a nun, but had married a World War I veteran who worked on the estate. Mina idolised her father, so much so that one of several books she wrote was about his life, Matt. There was a knock on the door of the classroom. The teacher opened it and spoke for a minute. Then he shut the door and looked very seriously at Matt. You are to go home, Matt. Your mother has died. Matt digested the news quickly. I'll go home when school is over, he said. The teacher could not persuade him otherwise. They were just learning about Brian Baru's death. Matt's father remarried, a woman who was an alcoholic. She neglected the children, so Matt, when still a child, left and moved in with neighbours who looked after him. It wouldn't be a day that she didn't speak about her father. Mina Bani Cribbian's neighbour, Risa Kyo. From the time they were all really young coming in from school, she said the father would always have the newspaper there and while they were eating their dinner, he would read out the newspaper to them. So she said from that early age, they knew what was going on in the world. Her father, Matt, also interpreted that world for them in traditional Catholic and nationalist terms. In another book, she wrote of how he reacted to the first time she began playing the organ in the local church. The first time I played benediction, it was on a Sunday at four o'clock. On that day, Daddy cycled up and said solemnly to me, Now you've committed yourself to being at all the services and it's good work. But if a petticoat ever goes inside that sanctuary, you're to quit. She played the organ in that church for 30 more years. When Mina was a young teenager, she met a soldier who was billeted on the estate. A year after their meeting, he wrote a poem about their first encounter. She had been sitting in a bed of forget-me-nots. When twilight shadows darken and life's brief span is done, may we still recall that evening in 1941. May we meet beyond that shadow land within the golden fort, near a bed of blue forget-me-nots like those of St. Record. Mina joined a religious order, but left for medical reasons before profession. She then worked in the civil service until she resigned to marry the soldier, Gus, who was now a stamp dealer. Gus had had a tough life. He was abandoned by his mother. Their son, Cullum, remembers Mina's and Gus's relationship. She had huge respect for my dad and his abilities. In that sense, she idolised him. He trained as a journalist and he taught her. They did the Ballymun Gazette together, so he would have been showing her how to write for a magazine. In the early 60s, the post office in Santry became available and Mina took it over. There, she and Gus raised six children. Another memory I have is the typewriter going all the time because both herself and Dad were always writing. So that's something that will stick in the back of your head, the clack-clack of a, a typewriter. Irish Press, April 26th, 1973. Irish Catholics are forced to worship in the language of their conqueror. No communication is allowed from an Irish-speaking Catholic to the Pope, not even if he writes it in Latin. The Irish Press, April the 10th, 1978. We speak for the majority of the women of this country and we reckon that what they want is a husband, a home and a family. The Irish woman wants to be queen in her own home. The role of the working mother is foreign to her. Irish Independent, June 18th. 
1981. The term one-parent family, so commonly used in your newspaper, is a misnomer. Even the cowslip in the field has two parents. The term had to be coined to cover up the spate of fornication that followed on the heels of the contraception campaign. Mina campaigned on two levels, on the public stage and privately over problems she heard about in the area. Her son, Garrod. A person got seriously ill and required an ambulance one day and the ambulance went astray, could not find Clunchock, even from all of the directions and everything. So my mother was seriously miffed at that and she got on the phone the following day and she said, I need a sign pointing to where Clunchock is at the nearest crossroads. And they said, well, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll take that on board and, and, you know, in due course we, we will get a sign. Mum said, no, you don't understand. I want the sign now. So they gave her all the reasons, of course, as you would, why you can't, you know, have a sign automatically. And mum was having none of it. And she said, look, she said, I'm staying on the phone until you get the sign. And she meant what she said, but they didn't realise that. And after an hour or so, she got tired and my dad took over. And after an hour or so, then my mother came back. She'd had something to eat. And of course, several times the phone would be put down, but the call would go back in straight away. And uh, this continued quite literally all day up to closing time at half five, uh, at which time my mother said, now she said, I will be on the phone again at nine o'clock tomorrow morning and it's going to continue like that until I get the sign. And the following morning we were going out early to mass because mass was at eight o'clock and the sign was there. She was an enemy of bureaucracy. She ran a post office, but she sat next to the phone for other people to be ringing in about this query or that query. And these people that would come into Mina, they would be like myself in the early, early days. They would be too shy. Risa Kyo. They wouldn't have the confidence to know what to say. So Mina would make the phone call for them. Usually it would be people who were told by the Department of Social Welfare they weren't entitled to a pension or a disability benefit or an unmarried mother's allowance, whatever it was called. Mina's son, Cullum. And she would find a way to get it for them. And sometimes she would be screaming on the phone, telling the, the officials at the other end that they had to do this and it was an absolute disgrace and so on. You'd know then when someone on the other end would say, well, I can't help you. And then you would know she would say, uh, well, get me someone who can. And sometimes they'd be talking to her and they'd say... Hold on a moment, Mrs. Crippen. And then they'd put their hand over the phone and say, Is that mad Ellen from Sandry? Get that done, will you? Yes, we'll have that out to you today, Mrs. Crippen. You could go through about three people before she'd get to the, the top because she wouldn't hang up until she got to the top. And if she didn't get the satisfaction at the top, you would know when she would say, Now, little girly. Or if it was a man she was speaking to, she would say, Now, sonny boy. And you knew at that stage that this battle was only beginning. You have to remember she taught an awful lot of people for the civil service exams and she got them into the civil service. And so when she needed to find out information about how things worked, she could ring them. When I joined the civil service first, I couldn't believe that there were only country people in it, except the people from Santry, Ballymun or Tlunchuk. There were no jobs in the 70s, 80s for us, especially for people who didn't have much of an education. So Mina said, send the girls over and she would do a few lessons to try and get us into the civil service. 
So one by one, we went over, all my sisters and brothers, one by one, went into the civil service through the lessons that they got with Mina. And to this day, there are five of us still in there. She had a phenomenal memory and complete recall. Her son, Garrod. So she was able to teach from memory. She didn't need books. The post office is the closest part to the road. And you've got the road just passing right by the house. You've got a little courtyard outside it. If you go to the left of the post office and around the back, you'll come across a prefab. We call it the hut. I don't know why, we just call it the hut. It's where she used to do her grinds. People think that she was all the time trying to bludgeon her way straight through, but she was actually brilliant at finding ways around things. I'll give you an example. She had a girl she was doing singing grades with. She had learned the theory and she was a brilliant singer. But she had a very flat Dublin accent. And this invaded her song and she failed. Now, any other singing teacher would say, hmm, I wonder what we're going to do with this. You're going to have to go to elocution classes. That wasn't mum's way. The quickest and the best way around that was, right, there's the song that has to be learned. And this is the person who has to learn it. What can we do differently? So she taught her the song in German. The girl knew no German. So she had to pronounce the words as mum told her. And she sang the song in German, repeated the exam and got it. The way the country it's is a, going, you regret the way the country is going. Yes, a tiny pocket of people. They, they say their things. They say they get their catchphrases and they get them across. They don't represent women. They're not, they're not doing anything for women. They certainly don't represent the housewife, the married mother at home. Outside the home, Mina and her husband Gus continue to campaign against a changing Ireland. You see, every organisation I ever started, I knew one of my opponents would always be Mina because while I was trying to change the world and Mina was trying to keep it at a standstill in every sense of the word, Frank Crummy campaigned for the abolition of corporal punishment in schools in the late 1960s. And I attended a debate in Bolton Street Tech one time when Mina arrived in with a girl of 17. And Mina shouted, now remember, we're at a, a student's debating society and we all know what students are like. And Mina announced to the whole audience that this is one of my pupils whom I came and she appreciates it. And needless to say, the students shouted, demonstration, demonstration. Garrod, their son, remembers his parents being more nuanced. I do remember them railing, in writing actually, against the physical assaults that were going on in, in schools all over the country. They really could not stand that. They did not see the relationship between that and, and education. If a four- or five-year-old child decides to be bold... There's no power in heaven or earth will stop that child from howling or from running around, from doing, except a quick slap. So that to, to scrap that just means that our lives are now governed by bold four-, five-, and six-year-old children. In 1969, I was on the Late Late Show on the panel, and when the programme ended, a member of the audience took a swing at me. That was Gus. Mina not only wrote letters and prose, but also music, in Latin and Irish. These pieces were sung by a small choir she set up. 
It was part of an Irish language and cultural group, Ogagris Nave Poppin, which competed in Feshna around the country. We were quite shy, but she had a way of getting around this. There was no fuss made. If you started to say, I can't do it, she'd say, of course you can, you'll be grand. She'd put the confident ones up on stage first. You know, we would then just follow suit. We didn't have time to think about it. The confidence that I got started at that age. I think I'm one of her few failures in all the years. I just can't hold a note. So much so the choir used to pay me to shut up and mime. Rose Connell was a classmate and friend of Mina's daughter, Ida. My family situation wasn't the best. My father was an abusive alcoholic. And after one particular hiding, I slipped out and went to Mina's. And just knocked on the door and turned up and kind of... I remember Mina looking at me. And she's going, you all right, Rosanna? And I, I said, yeah, Mina, where's Ida? And I just, I didn't want the attention, but she knew something was up. And she never said anything. Do you want a spud? Do you want some gravy? And I'm, yeah, love that. You get your lunch there. Always got lunch in Mina's. And I sat down, ate it and went and found Ida. And I was there, that was a summer's day because it was late-ish. It would have been about seven o'clock-ish. It was near my bedtime. And I can remember there being a big fuss later on that evening say about nine o'clock I'd been missing for a couple of hours and nobody knew where I was and my mammy eventually turned up and she was crying my father was drunk and Mina managed to calm him down and persuaded my mammy to just leave me and that was one of the first times that I stayed for any length of time at that stage I stayed for three days I think they were nearly the happiest days I'd known at that stage because I didn't have to worry. I was collected from school, I was brought home, I was fed, which was a great thing for me because you didn't know if there was going to be food there today or not. It was nice to feel safe. I slept beside Ida most nights. I think eventually they got me a bed that I could use. It's over there sort of thing. It was in the girls' room. It was great. You could come home and find someone else in your bed just as easily as you found them in your house. Somebody came in, they were sick, they were told to go lie down and was your bed was chosen. And it just meant find somewhere else to sleep tonight. You know, but it was just part of the house as it was. Christmas dinners in our house always had either strangers or people that would have nobody at Christmas. Mina's daughter, Ida. We would always be expected to make an, an extra space for people. And was that, like, did you find that annoying? You're sitting there trying to have your own Sunday dinner and you kind of say, can we not have a break for one week or whatever? Or can we have one Christmas where we've no interruptions? I mean, one of my big memories of Christmas is sharing my Christmas dinner sitting outside with a traveller kid. There was a knock on the door and my dad went out and it was a kid, I'd say 11, 12 maybe. He wouldn't come in and dad just came in and he said, just take up a dinner for him. And I took up a dinner and he said, now bring that out and bring your own dinner out and sit with them outside. 
And I never understood it at the time, but it's something that then stood to me for the rest of my life. I mean, I know also that you go and, so, and disrupt meetings. We did enjoy ourselves. On, on you know, sort of meetings on what sort of things? Contraception? Well, say now if we decided that there was a meeting on about some of these things. And uh, we know that the same old stuff, you know, woman's right to choose and all these old daft things are going to be trotted out. Meanwhile, in the outside world, there was a push for change in Ireland. Anne Connolly ran the Well Woman Centre, which was part of a campaign to make contraceptives available to anyone who wanted them. In terms of Mina, your grandmother, certainly my memories of her was of the particular public event in which there was a number of speakers up on the platform and there was a set of those for and those against and the hall was absolutely full. And the next thing from the back of the hall, a, a sort of wave came in and the first thing you noticed were the redheads and they would have been your mum's generation. So Mina was in there leading the posse uh, and she had this big coat on her and sort of big face and big presence. And she would start the chanting at the back of the hall and she would chant her opposition against whatever we were talking about. And then her children would then take up the chant and try to drown out all voices. Mina's daughter, Anya, was one of those redheads. I was one of her chief hecklers. I was at an age where... Heckling was another part of life as much as the rosary and going to mass was. You A phone call went out, people were gathered up and we went heckling. And we knew it as nothing else. What the meetings were about never made the slightest bit of difference because we were only there for one purpose. Someone said, it's a biscuit. You answered, it's a bar. Somebody else would say, the goal is, and we say, who scored? And that way we disrupt every meeting we went without having a clue from Adam what the meetings were about. I remember one night, particularly in the Mansion House, they, they had this word, you know, everything is a political football, you see. And the minute they'd mentioned football, one of the gang would get up and say, free up for Dublin, you see, and there'd be a whistle, and they'd, they'd take the free for Dublin. And, of course, the whole procedure... This is your crowd now. Oh, okay, yeah. the, the whole thing would be held up, you see, while they take the free up for Dublin, you know. So they went along frantically through their scripts, and everywhere they had football, and here they were looking for another word for football, because, you see, the sentence wouldn't read, you know. But that kind of thing, yeah. Sure, if we didn't enjoy it, life wouldn't be worth living, would it? And, and you come out after disrupting the meeting and you have a good laugh about it, Of do you? course. We have a good laugh inside as well. So we have a good laugh most days, about most things anyway. Frank Crummy was often on the platform at those meetings. During the Celtic Tiger, people went to dances, you know, and to uh, football matches and to the cinema. In the 50s, 60s and 70s, you didn't have the money for that. So you organised a protest. At every meeting that Mina turned up at, whether it was contraception, anything, she always made a scene. The various debating societies around would invite you as a speaker. And, of course, they wouldn't want to have a debate if Mina wasn't there because she was going to make it a great night. And what, what kind of things did you do to disrupt her efforts? I'd be in the audience of the Late Late Show and Mina was on the same row. And when the camera wouldn't be on me, I would throw kisses to her and eventually she exploded. And, and of course, you've got yourself good television. She was a sort of black and white caricature. And when it comes to Mina herself, did you have a respect for her or did you dislike her? Being honest, no, because what she wasn't doing was engaging in a debate or a discussion. Her approach was to try and to shut down the meeting. She was a woman I would have loved to have sat down and had a serious conversation with 
In other words, where neither of us were playing to an audience, do you know what I mean? And there was no mileage in being disruptive or screaming. I think there was some basic understanding maybe about the motives that lay behind it and a recognition that it was about a fear that they were going to lose in Ireland, that us, the next generation, didn't fully appreciate the values behind it. She always goes on about her own idyllic childhood. Cullum, Mina's son. She was very heavily influenced by Irish nationalism, the Eamon de Valera view, let's say, of Ireland, the John Charles McQuaid view of how Ireland should be. And so anything that went against that, I think, yes, she would have resisted it. That included changes in the Catholic Church. Church of Mina's childhood did not have mass in the vernacular, so she stuck with the Latin mass. Her daughter Anya followed suit. I did what she had wanted to do herself. I joined a religious order in Spain, and the day I told her I was going, although she was heartbroken, she still felt honoured that one of her children had been chosen. The first three years were very normal, letters back and forth, phone calls back and forth, and after three years then contact became very sparse. They weren't allowed to contact me. For the simple fact, when I joined the order, Mum was part of that particular church I was in. And after a few years, she decided, no, it wasn't the right place to be. She never tried to impose that on me. She never, never rang me saying, come home, immediately it's the wrong place to be. But the order I was in decided she was a bad influence on me once she was outside the realm of their church as such. So they cut off contact and told me that my family had cut the contact. She never believed that I didn't want to have contact with her, but she knew that she could make my life harder by forcing her, them to let her see me. She had, on two occasions, come out and got solicitors to get a court order to let her in to visit with me, but we always had to have somebody else with us. I was never allowed to visit on my own with her. And she knew then that that was going to make life harder for me, so she let it go hoping that one day I'd see what was happening and come home. Mina continued her public campaigning against contraception, divorce, abortion, sex education in schools and the contemporary attitudes towards unmarried mothers. I didn't flippantly talk about unmarried mothers. I spoke about mistresses and I refused to call them unmarried mothers, if you want to know. I don't think they deserve as dignified a title as that at all. Rose was the classmate of Mina's daughter, Ida. She had been minded by Mina as a child. When she was 24 and single, she came to the house with news one day. My parents were gone, so Mina was the next nearest one that I could tell, so I was very nervous. And it was a bit of a shock to fall pregnant, but what the hey. But the thoughts of going in and telling Mina that I was pregnant, but she just went, right, now, what are you going to do? And that was it, it was just... Let's get on with it. Let's sort it. I'm an unmarried mother. I have three children. I think there are people who have not only committed the sin of fornication, but caused me to pay for it. From her staunch belief and what came across on television, you would have said that this woman wouldn't even tolerate them in her house. But my children were as welcome there as any child. 
and she was granny to my three children. She was accused of refusing to serve women who were unmarried and, and who had babies. But mum uh, had the last laugh because she actually had a girl employed who had two children outside of marriage and had them in the office area with her because she had nobody to mind them. And there was somebody actually came in one day accusing mum of being against unmarried mothers and doing all kinds of stuff. And the girl stood up and said, hold on a moment, she said, I'm an unmarried mother. <laughs> and they had to go off then about their business. This was the kind of thing, though, that went on. Divorce, as, as far as I'm concerned, if you're discussing divorce, you're discussing adultery. And call a spade a spade. Six of their shall not commit adultery. That's as easy as that. I went off and I got married. Risa, the neighbour's girl Mina helped to get into the civil service. The marriage didn't work after a while, so again I went over to talk to Mina because you could always go over and talk to Mina. I said, what about divorce? I said, knowing that that wouldn't sit too well with her now. You do understand, I said, I do actually have to do this because if I don't and anything happens, my husband can walk straight back into my house. So she said, yes, you do. What you said to me in that regard was love the sinner but hate the sin. So when she was on radio or television, she would be saying, this is wrong, thou shalt not. But that was about the sin. But when somebody came to her who was a sinner in Catholic perspective, she would help them out every way she could. I'm Labour and I managed to convince her a good few times to vote Labour, you know, even though it would have gone against a lot of her instincts. Podrick, her son-in-law, but then she'd laugh at me sometimes and say, everybody's calling me right wing, sure. I mean, I believe in free education and free lunches and, and, and to feed the poor and everything else like that. I believe the state has responsibilities to do with that. It shouldn't just rely on charity. And I said, Jenny, you're a communist. You know, that's what I mean. A lot of the time, OK, so she was conservative when it came to social values about divorce and contraception and abortion and things like that. But in the economic way, she was as left-wing as me, if not further. And the difference between her and me is that she had the courage to actually live it. You know, she gave things away for nothing while I was always saying you know they won't appreciate it because there was limitations to mine you know but there's no limitations to her her generosity and stuff like that While Nina may have been generous to those who called to her door there were limits to what she could do to help her own children her daughter, Anya, was 17 years in the convent in Spain, still being told that her family didn't want any contact from her. I found a letter on the Mother Superior's desk from Mum that I wasn't meant to see. And a week after I read the letter, I asked, was there any news from home? I was told no. And I knew it was a lie. So that's when all my doubts started. And that started the progress then for coming home again. She always thought about me always hoped the doorbell would ring, she'd open the door hoping to see me there. And then the day I did ring to tell her I was coming home, she got such a fright she put down the phone without waiting for details of what flight. And when I arrived in Dublin Airport, the whole family were there and Mum had a big bouquet of flowers in her hand, which I found out later were meant for me, but she forgot to give them to me. She was so overjoyed to see me. She'd always hoped that I would come home and that I'd be home before Dad died. She did get home before Gus died. But his health was not good. When Alzheimer's set in, it was very difficult, both for mom and for dad. Mina and Gus's daughter, Ida. There was a period of time where dad started calling mom granny. And 
mom found this very upsetting and she'd sit down and try to explain to him and she'd say, look, Gus, I'm not granny, I'm your wife. And one of the days dad looked and he said, well, where's granny? And mom said, granny's dead. And dad started crying. Because for him, it's the first time that he's heard that granny's dead. Mom suffered those years because she'd lost him long before he died. Anya cared for Gus for a while and then Mina helped her get a job in the civil service and Anya got her life back on track. Things weren't so straightforward for Mina though when it came to helping another of her children, her son Michal. He was a genius. He obviously got my mother's brains. Unfortunately he had this, I call it a streak in him, where he had to have a challenge. He, he always had to be challenged. And of course, normal life isn't like that. In fact, most people don't want to be getting challenged every minute of every day. They want, they want to be able to just breeze through life if they possibly can. I think he always wanted excitement and was always looking for excitement. I don't know how much he got involved in, whether he did drugs or, you know, how many crimes he was involved in. I, I can't tell you. I don't know. In 1984... Michal was arrested and charged with burglary and possession of a firearm. He jumped bail and went on the run. To be honest, I don't think she ever believed that he was capable of doing any of the things he was accused of. Like any mother with any troublesome son, my mother was trying to protect him. I presume she was as protective as she could and also felt that people were out to get her through him and so that she might have seen that, OK, maybe he had done some things wrong, but they were being made much worse to make her look bad. And we were wondering, would he turn up at our wedding? He never did, but the guards did. The guards came along and they had sat in the lobby waiting for him to turn up. I know that she suffered when he was away, but I also know that she used to love when all of a sudden she'd get a phone call, a crossword clue number in such and such a paper, and she'd read the clue, and it wouldn't be that he wanted the answer, it was there was something in the clue for her to read. So that was his way of keeping in touch with her. He never said, hello, Mom, this is Michal. That never was the start of a conversation, obviously, because you never knew who might be listening. So it was just a case of crossword clue number and they'd go on from there. But at least then she knew he was all right. After 10 years, Michal returned, but he wasn't well. He suffered from mental illness, including delusions. In the mid-1990s, Mina gave land beside her house for a new primary school, one that would teach Irish and traditional Catholicism. But Mina and the school principal fell out with most of the parents. The divisions in this complicated and emotive dispute became apparent with the separation of children who all previously attended the same All-Irish school. 25 of them were today crammed into one room with a new teacher on the first floor of one of Ballymun's towers, while another five remained in the original prefab building and were being taught by the school principal. This building is the building that used to be the school and it's really sad because it's in bits now um, and I'm sure there's 
mics and stuff like that. It's really like sad to think of it because it, first of all, it used to like my first memory of it is being in the school and having our lessons there and getting our cheese toasties and stuff like that. The row is over the fact that the principal is teaching a catechism, which dates back to the time of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. They're all coming home with all the stories of the devil. The devil come, Lucifer, they call him, and their mammies are sinners. Some of the parents are single parents, their mammies aren't married, and their mammies are sinners. And she's taken them out of the school here and brought them into a little building at the back, which uh, Mina Vanny Cribbon calls a, a chapel, and she's put headscarves on the girls, and they've taught them uh, the Trinidine schism of religion. And the situation is further complicated by the fact that the school is built on a site owned by the woman who runs the post office next door. And she has said that she'll lock the gates of the school if she gets any further trouble from the parents. I have a constitutional right not to have any other religion taught on my property other than my own. And similarly, the teacher has a constitutional right not to teach any religion other than her own. And this is the point that is overlooked in the whole proceedings. The school closed soon afterwards. Then came 1999. There were so many events in 99 that it was our annus horribilis. First, Mina lost her husband. And when Dad died, it was like you tore a limb off Mum. She was heartbroken. When Dad died, she felt she'd have to lean on her sister. She was very close to her sister, Nan. And then Nan died. And yet while she was dying, Mam was leading the rosary. She was over there late at night, staying up all night with her. And similarly with Spike, the trouble that she had had with him. Spike was the nickname for Mina's troubled son, Michal. A few weeks after her sister's death, he became uncontactable. She tried his mobile phone, which she had bought him, to be able to keep in touch with him. And there was no answer. And she rang a few of his friends and nobody seemed to know where he was. So Tuesday she rang the landlord in the flat. He'd moved to a flat at this stage and the landlord said he'd be up the following morning. And she said the minute they opened the door she knew he was dead. I don't think it was ever a verdict on it. I'm not 100% sure we suspect suicide. Mum would never say it. I suppose in modern parlance she should have got counselling. She should have been suicidal herself. She shouldn't have been able to cope with it. And I don't know how she did. Mina kept busy with her choir, her grinds, the post office and helping people with their affairs. She did income tax forms for people, probate for me. Bridie Hanley was a neighbour. At that time, uh, you could go to a solicitor and he'd charge you. But Mina would tell them, particularly widows, don't go to a solicitor. This is what you do. You get the forms and you fill them in and you won't have to pay a penny. And... Even farmers round the countryside used to come in to her to fill in their farms. I was 17 and I was getting on pretty bad in school and I wasn't going in. Another neighbour's child, Anthony Rooney. Well, I went over and she was really nice and was not mad like I heard. Just sat down and talked probably for about half an hour and then start doing maths. Irish. Basically, she asked me over every day. She'd ring me every day, every morning, to see if I'm up, first of all, and then to get me over. And if I wasn't over, she'd be ringing and ringing and ringing. And I'd feel dreadful about it. I really would, because she was giving up her mornings for nothing, to see somebody do good for themselves. 
and she had always lived her life with one thing in mind and that was you have to help other people. You can never charge for helping other people because what the Almighty gave you for nothing you cannot charge to pass on to somebody else. Then one day Mina got a particular call asking for help. She got a phone call from somebody in Athlone who told her there was a family in Roscommon and they were trying to take the kids away. And I was saying to her, Mom, what's that got to do with you? And she says, well, she just wanted to know what does she do about it? And I said, nothing. The family in Roscommon were a couple who were alcoholics and who were neglecting their six children chronically. The local social workers had been visiting the family for years, trying to help the parents improve their parenting. Then, in 2000, they managed to get the parents to agree to let relatives look after the children. Paddy Gannon was the social work manager dealing with the case. Quite a considerable amount of time and effort had been put into coming to that agreement on both sides. It took years. Just before the children were about to be moved, the mother got a high court injunction stopping the move. The social workers weren't aware of the hearing for the injunction and weren't in court. It took people by by surprise. It confused people as to why or how, given the circumstances we had been working with, a high court injunction could be granted, actually granted, without any date for recall. The mother was assisted in the high court case by Mina. She continued to attend the district court with the family when the care order applications were being put before the district court. And she continued to be quite strong in presenting an alternative plan guided by her particular beliefs in the family and how families should be kept together and supported. Partly because the health board failed to react to the High Court injunction, the children were left in the family home where the parents began to sexually abuse them. This went on for four years until one of the children asked to be taken into care and it emerged what had been going on. Both the mother and the father were jailed for sexual abuse. At the mother's trial, the judge asked about the injunction and who had assisted the mother. Then Mina's name came out. Now, before we go to news and sport, we're going to come back to the Roscommon inquiry. Philip Boucher-Hayes now profiles Conservative Catholic activist Mina Bani Cribben, who denies funding the court action, but was identified as the individual who lobbied the HSE on the parents' behalf in the... Mina was absolutely devastated. I had never seen her in such a state. She was in tears. Mina had no idea what had gone on here in the background, that her intentions definitely would have been to make sure that children had a a mummy and a daddy and she obviously wasn't given the full facts by whoever asked her to do this. She had a very strong conviction about supporting families, which, you know, is valid. Paddy Gannon, social work manager. But she carried it probably to an extreme. Sometimes in working with children... When you've been working with them for a period of time and you're not sure still what's going on within a home, that a period of assessment outside of the home is helpful because children have a great loyalty to their parents or they may have a great fear of their parents or they may have a combination of both and would find it very unsafe to speak their minds until they are in a safe environment. Mina's initial response to a newspaper reporter was to dismiss the social workers. Humped a lot of them. I wouldn't believe a Hail Mary from their mouths. Then she released a statement. 
I did not provide any financial assistance whatsoever to pursue or maintain any legal action in this case. Any help I provided at the time to the family involved was given in good faith. I am since shocked to learn of the revelations that have unfolded. I believe that the state authorities must address their shortcomings in this matter and not seek to scapegoat a private citizen in order to deflect blame. Neither myself or any of my colleagues had any interest in scapegoating any individual. I think the way it was picked up and interpreted and the way it was publicised probably gave the impression of scapegoating more than actually was ever intended. That's the uh, story of horrendous abuse of six children at a house in Roscommon and the jailing yesterday of the mother who admitted that she was the mother from hell. And uh, She became a little bit upset about the vilification. There was a court order to remove these children and place them in a safe environment and it was stymied or blocked by um, a right-wing Catholic. Mina Bani. This hypocrisy and two-facedness and this feudal family values ethos that's been shoved down our throats by these, these people and people like them. I just want people to get behind these. With hindsight, it was say, shortly after the start of the health decline. In recent months, Mina was in more and more pain. Still, she had visitors calling for help. There was this word of mouth thing, you know, Mina will give you money if you beg her hard enough kind of thing. That's kind of where her need to help the needy just kind of transcended boundaries and, and really annoyed me, really annoyed the rest of the family. Very much angered us. And as well as that, it's kind of like you'd, you'd worry about where the money's going because if they say that it's going to their kid, I'm standing here knowing that it's not going to their kid, but she would always give people the benefit of the doubt and as everybody's been saying she just cared so much for children that she would just want them to be in the best position and so that's how people got to her pull on her heartstrings with the kids if you mention kids my kids in hospital my kids sick there's no food stuff like that the image of a child going hungry or a child being neglected in that kind of way upset her so much that she like she would have to give in then so you get them coming in and they'd have all these excuses and I remember, like, we'd be sitting in the post office and the first thing I'd do on, if I'm starting a shift, I'll check because we had little notes sellotaped up on the counter with names and amounts, how much they owed. And they knew, they got to know my face and my sister's face and everything as, as people that say no, because I would be point blank just no. I'd say no because it's all coming out of her pocket. So they're literally taking money from an elderly lady that is not theirs. Often when they'd leave, if they didn't get money from inside in the post office, they'd go around. They'd go around here to the side of the house and she'd hear the knock on the door or the doorbell and she'd open up and then they'd just get money off her there within minutes, I'd say. She'd take care of business right up to the end. Mina's eldest son, Garod. I took her for three hours of tests in Beaumont and when I came back there were people there waiting to see her. That was less than a week I think before she died. She wasn't able to see them. Uh, She tried but she got physically sick and and had to go to bed. But that that was more or less the end then at that stage. She ended up in hospital diagnosed with leukaemia. The doctor came in and she had been told it was serious and she might have three to six months. But when the doctor told her it was a week, and she said, a week? And then she said, okay. The doctor was much more upset than my mother. She just said, well, you can't tell me 
when I'm going to die to the doctor. Only God knows that. And the doctor agreed with her. I think he would have agreed with anything she said at that stage. She said, I'm seeing more and more of Gus. He, he's here with me more and more. And I went, well, the next time you're feeling bad, I said, you go on, don't hang on for us. And she said, I won't. I'm going to go to Gus. We had just finished the rosary when Mum's breathing was gone at that stage. It was gone very laboured. And the last one was just like, it went right down through her body. And just like she was saying goodbye. Month's mind. A Latin mass with the music provided by her choir. One of the things I'm finding extremely difficult is going into work in the morning. What I'd do is, while my computer was warming up, I'd ring my mummy and just have a morning conversation about the night before and uh, what's going on or what are the plans, anything. I'm, I'm the type of person who likes a lot of variety. There was so much of life that happened through her and I just missed that constant interaction. Wednesday night, Saturday night, the phone would ring about half eight, nine o'clock. Am I a millionaire yet? She wanted to know the numbers, the lotto numbers. And I think in my house is one of the things that's missed most. My son got his leave and search results shortly afterwards. And the first thing I did was go for my phone to ring mum. So, yeah, it's hard to know that she's not at the other end of a line. 